gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Hello everybody and welcome to this, the latest edition of ESSR Feature here on Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. I'm your host this week, I'm Stephen Wilson and tonight we're going to be talking about the impact of impact. We'll be going back and looking back at all things TNA, total non-stop action. But before we kick off, just the usual bits of housekeeping. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Suplex Retweet. Subscribe us on any good podcast platform to search for Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet, sorry. And you can find us on YouTube where we've got all the great stuff that we have on there. Quiz Showdown, the Conspiracy Theory, Conspiracy Theory, can't get the words out tonight, book it and so much more. Now to talk about TNA, I have got the panel of indie darlings of Suplex Retweet here to go through that uh, company. First of all, I would class him as our version of Shark Boy does absolutely nothing and one day we hope he goes into a coma so he can come out and start stone cold stunning people Scott McLeod <laughs> <laughs> I knew there wasn't going to be anything called me to fall in the word shark boy there so uh, thank you very much for that <laughs> not a problem this man is known for being uh, brash and abrasive with his words choices you know he's slightly below the top order of the championship much like Mr Anderson Strack everybody <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, so what is your video on? Is it a dial-up? Oh, my camera's absolutely immense, man. Oh, mate. <laughs> so bloody bad. It's a new webcam. <laughs> Quite a good laptop with a shit camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what can I do? What can I do? And, and fi- finally, he would like to be known as the Great Sanada. Just without the booking choices that he had in TNA. It's the great Grand Trismo, Grant McRobbie. Good evening. What? I'm I'm not right. That like that one. Like the great Snada was something else. Bring it back. Bring it back. Just don't bring back that stable. Oh my god, it was awful. TJP wear a mask. Oh, what's the suicide stuff? Well, he would never wear a mask these days anyway. But we're gonna go and try and dissect some of the history of TNA, just go through the main talking points. Obviously we're just off the back of a TNA pay-per-view, the latest bound for glory, but it's been nearly 18 years since the start of TNA Strack and it came for it was a brainchild of uh, the Jarretts, uh, Jeff Jarrett and his dad Jerry Jarrett, who came up with it along with Bob Ryder, whilst on a fishing trip apparently, at a time where WWE had just taken over WCW and ECW and there was not really a lot of variety in the rest of the world when TNA began in 2002. I mean, when TNA started, it was quite, it was a good alternative because you had a lot of different kind of styles of guys. Plus, when it started in 2002, and I've said this a few before and it's quite an unpopular opinion, I think WWE was so boring. It was just so boring. It just, it, it seemed like after the Attitude Era, it kind of came to an end in 2001 and they done the invasion. It just ran out of steam, so it was yeah. good to have something fresh to go to. When you seen guys like Loki, AJ Styles, and Jerry Lynn popped up again and founded the X Division, then you've got guys who like Sting in that who kind of disappeared through WCW, never went to WWE, pop up in there. So it was, it was quite interesting. Uh, Grant, the thing about TNA when they first started, they kind of started doing these whole monthly kind of pay per views as opposed to being on TV because I think they believed there wasn't a lot of a lot of urge 
for weekly wrestling as much. Obviously, the invasion had just finished. Monday Night Wars had just finished. So not many people were craving as much wrestling at that point in time at that since WWE. Do you think going with that kind of monthly product to make them give a bit more of an edge was probably a good way to start the company as we've kind of seen that formula happen so often with so many other indie companies? Definitely a bold choice. Um, kind of feels like the same way that I do like when I, before everything shut down, going to the likes of Progress. Uh, occasional rev pro and that and you were generally like a show a month but you're talking a pay-per-view length show every month so it's like it's a it's a bold thing to go straight into that model but yeah i think it was a great way to kind of stand out from the crowd a little bit something different and unique yeah definitely when they first started off scott you actually you did a review on our website suplexretweet.com of the first ever uh, tna pay-per-view which credit to you was a, a bit of a slog of a pay-per-view 18 years on uh, but uh, some interesting choices. We got, uh, as Strack mentioned, we got a mix of all these new stars coming in. We saw the likes of AJ Styles get his first exposure. And a familiar face being crowned the company's first champion on that show in uh, Mr. Ken, Ken Shamrock. Wonder what ever happened to him. <laughs> oh, if I ever have an idea like reviewing the first TNA weekly pay per view, please shoot me in the face. Because, like, yeah, there's some good stuff you get to see Loki and AJ Styles on that show. And the main event is kind of decent, but. God, good lord, that first show is rough to sit through. And it does seem like at first it was basically, here's all these new indie guys, because places like Ring of Honor were still in the early stages. They'd only done a few shows. And here's basically, here's all the pe- former WCW and WWE people that WWE doesn't want anymore. And yeah, 2002 WWE was still, still doing some good stuff in my opinion, I think, with yeah, SmackDown 6 and the early bands. But I think as the years go on, it seems to be as TNA gets more eyes because as the years go on in the 2000s especially, WWE, the complacency sets in and TNA is this new alternative with these newer guys, some, some uh, familiar names. And also something that was smart, I think, for them early on was they also they mixed new stuff with tradition by using the NWA championship. And I think <coughs> the idea of Ken Shamrock as the champion because really, I think we may have mentioned it before in our previous show about people who should have been like the champion. I think Shamrock's name was mentioned on that show. And I think he was somebody a lot of people thought should have been WF champion at some point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Grant Scott mentioned the NWF affiliation very early doors. Do you think that was a wise move of TNA going along that line, getting that official backing? Because it kind of gave them a bit more legitimacy at that point. In time? Yeah, NWA is, like, you're talking old schools, it goes like when it comes to like outside WWE, the fact that they've kept on going throughout the years in different shapes and forms. So it was definitely having that name. You know, you can't go wrong with starting a brand with someone big giving you a kind of bit of backing, something that's like NWA's got a lot of prestige in its history, a lot of big things like go back decades and that, like the flair and stuff like that, brings in big names when you think about it. So it's clever, but you have to, you put then a bit of pressure on yourself right from the get-go for it. And Strack, they kind of, um, I mentioned the edgy type of pro that they tried to do at this time, which was probably wise because WWE were moving away from that sort of attitude, there stuff a bit more of a alternative. You kind of seen that in the programming and this kind of stables that were kind of forming around about this time. I mean, don't know how much you remember of the SEX stable that was involved in TNA around about that time, uh, led by Vince Russo. You don't talk edgy in 2003, 2002, it's a stable called Sex. <laughs> Thank See, back then, I think there was a lot of, we can still cling on to that attitude and day risky things, you could like call on your groups, that stuff like that. And then, obviously, I seen a thing with Jim Cornette said that Vince Russo, the, the idea for TNA was a rip, as in, it was called Total Non-Stop Action, but Vince Russo meant it as tits and asses. So, and Jim Cornette did say that, he, that's what he, that's, it was a, he thinks it was a rip, but 
I think back then it was kind of transgression if obviously as you just said the attitude era into something new and then some people are thinking if we can stick to that we'll, we'll be as popular and then some people are thinking no we need to kind of move away from that and maybe start something different to get a rain grip on the ground to start running but some it worked some it didn't yeah, Scott I quite like the early days of this kind of the, uh, of the company they kind of brought in the WWE name but we didn't really see the guys who were doing well there were not like mainstream WWE uh, performers at that point in time one great example was one of the men who was quite a big part of the early couple of years there was uh, Ron The Truth Killings mm. better known now as the greatest ever 24-7 champion in WWE history in R-Truth <laughs> Yeah I think they, they briefly it was interesting to see them acknowledge it in R-Truth's recent uh, WWE 24 a few months ago they show a lot of footage of his time in the early days of TNA and he's the first properly recognised uh, African American NWA champion at that time because the number of few title changes we met future men of colour but it was kind of title changes that weren't technically recognised we'd stick it off certain people because like people like Flair would go to a territory and they only change the title because otherwise they were worried a riot would break out and also he was fresh off kind of not doing much in the WAF in like 2000-2001 and he felt like his the colour of his skin was the reason he was being held back and you actually look back on the stuff he's doing it's a million miles away from what you'd think of when you think of him as our truth mm-hmm. yeah it was so much different i remember when the this time it was a free life crew i think it was in tna it was him road dog and conan i believe yeah i think they brought in like billy gunn later on oh yeah then they became a tag team became the voodoo kid mafia BKM, Vincent Kennedy McMahon ripoff. Absolutely. <laughs> then when they were the James gang, that was something. That was something interesting. But they ran this kind of monthly pay-per-view format for a couple of years. I mean, the enemies know off the top of your head how many monthly pay-per-views they actually did before they became a weekly product. I think they were in forty odd at least. I think. Oh, you about one hundred and ten. Oh, you're close, Grant. You're very close. Uh, one hundred and eleven. <laughs> Twenty-seven months and one hundred and eleven pay-per-views they ran. <laughs> before they went weekly and started doing the three hour pay-per-views and that kind of came about in September 2004 where we began seeing the development of what would become TNA Impact which is so synonymous with the company now and I think uh, granted we was around about this time we started to see the sort of niches of TNA that a lot of people began to associate with them I and mean, one of the first examples is the six-sided ring I mean, I remember first tuning into TNA and thinking, what the hell are they doing with a six-sided ring? But it was something different. I mean, you think, all right, we'll give us a go. It was just weird. It's such a weird concept. Like, you look at it and you're like, I mean, it was at a point where like, it kind of, I'd kind of lost a bit of interest in wrestling at that point. But a few people said, check out some TNA. Uh, it's got a six-sided ring. And I was like, pardon me, they have a lot. And, you know, my, my mind still boggles sometimes when I look at it, but it does, you know, the visual sticks in your mind. You never forget it. You never forget some of the spots that were creatively done with it as well. I wouldn't mind seeing it come back again in some shape or form for like a special pay-per-view. They brought it back, they're not quite, uh, they brought it back briefly, I think, and I think they went back to Foresight. Sure, a couple of years ago. They did die. they brought it back for a while and then I don't think a lot of guys knew how to kind of wrestle in it, so they kind of just went back to the four. Uh, see, it was something different, but it did lead to a lot of innovations in Strack. One of the uh, innovations that kind of came from that, which you have been a big proprietor of in your time here, you hosted a show about it last year, was the X Division. 
and all the stuff that came from that, be it the, the wrestlers that got involved in that division or the matches that came from that division, such as the Ultimate X match, which seems a crazy concept when you look at it, the, the wires and the X with the big foam X on that one, but some of the spots that came from that match are some of the most uh, iconic spots in the company's history. I think with the six-headed ring, I mean, I'd love to have wrestled in a six-headed ring. I'd love to have had a, a match and a ring like that because that is the same as Grant. I kind of fell away from WWE. Everything was to me, as I say, kind of boring. So I can't even remember how I came across it, but I just seen the X Division and then I seen Alex Shelley, Chris Sabin, AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, Samojo, all the X Division guys. And I was like, ah, well, one, it's a great idea for a ring. And then when you watch the Ultimate X and you watched, um, like obviously Unbreakable with AJ Daniels and Joe and the spots that they were doing and stuff like that and I think it was AJ said that he says if somebody's in the corner you can uh, what's it that you can still kind of run after open hit somebody with something whereas obviously if in a sports riding ring you've gone straight by corner to corner so it gave you more angles and more dynamics to hit stuff like I mean AJ had a, a rebound um, moonsault onto Raven onto a ladder but due to the angle he'd actually be able to hit it and bounce him essentially back into the ring. It was a four-sided, he couldn't have, there wasn't enough space for the ladder to flip back up. So it did make the spots a lot more entertaining. Yeah, and uh, Scott, the guys who really, you know, Strat mentioned the likes of the guys in that unbreakable triple threat that we talked about on that exhibition show, AJ Styles, Chris Daniels, Samoa Joe. There's a lot of names still around about that division at that time who didn't become as big household names, I think it's fair to say, but still played a great prominent role in those early days of TNA. I'm talking about the, the likes of Matt Bentley, we had the, the likes of Johnny Devine, you know. He's not as big a name as the likes of AJ Styles, but even Frankie Kazarian back in those early days, you know, putting on all these great matches in that kind of X-Division style. Like Matt Bentley, you forget about until you go back and watch the early TNA. I think that's the thing that you'll some people may complain about the use of former WWE guys, but I think you don't discover people like AJ Styles or Christopher Daniels until you tune in your TNA probably to see those other guys I think we went to the 6th there and I think uh, they, they stopped using it again uh, on the first official taping in 2018 of Scott Demore and Don Callis taking over and I think they may have brought it they were planning on bringing it back for that uh, No Place Like Home TNA special they were going to do many a weekend but also that got cancelled and I do think I've heard, I've heard from like AJ Styles and other wrestlers saying that a 6 a ring did have a little less give when you were bumping on it but he said like when they eventually brought the four side ring and you were so used to bumping on the six side ring that like even though like it's still like there's still less give in a four side ring when you bump on a four side ring he said it was like bumping on a cloud the difference between the two and i think you just like he said creates for more ambition the ultimate x looks better in a six side ring and also they managed to give a unique brand into their steel cage matches but they didn't just call it steel cage they called it six sides of steel where it kind of looked more, more in kind of a an octagon in USC than a, than a regular wrestling ring. Yeah, uh, man, uh, Scott mentioned the cage style of it. I think they, they did well with their cage stuff. I mean, you get the likes of, or critical of the likes of Hell in a Cell, TLC and WWE, which is brand pay-per-view, and they just run these matches there. But they had lockdown. And what they did quite well with it is every match was a cage. And then eventually, later on, they would then have the main events, lethal lockdown. So it's kind of like war games. Formerly, you've got all these extra matches with the cage type of thing, and they use their ca the cage really. I mean, cage matches, and I hate cage matches. I hate crap. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, but one of the best cage moments of all time was that one in the tag match between America's Most Wanted and Triple X, where Elix Skipper 
glides across the cage, like, and then just does the the hurricane run off the top of it. I mean, the they use it, they use the cage so well in those early days around about that type. That that spot was absolutely incredible. It just for some reason it just like in my younger age it just reminded me of Vega in Street Fighter Two with the cage fighting background and stuff like that. And it's just I was like, how the hell did they even come up with that? It's incredible. And I'm like you, like I've a standard like hell in a cell that it's got a bit of excitement but a standard cage match just does not do much for me it just doesn't there's something very oddly annoying about it i think it's just because the cage is kind of on the ring so you can't really get out like you could with a hell in a cell or anything but like tna's ones the lockdowns are memorable really still come on tna give us another lockdown pay-per-view it's the right time for it everyone's in lockdown do it Oh, it makes sense. It was always around about April though, so I think they're kind of, they need to maybe wait till next year so you're hopefully in lockdown. Uh, Strack, I think the impact zone, one of the things that doesn't get a, a niche to them, but a lot of the things that doesn't really get to stand out is what I liked about it is they had those double entrances. You had the faces come out from one side and the heels come out from the other side. It's something you'd never really seen. They've just kind of ditched it a bit at one point in time, which is a shame because it gave you a nice idea of who was in a big main event still one comes from the other side one comes from that side and then they kind of meet in the middle once the ring once the bell goes it was good I didn't actually <laughs> watch it for about a year I didn't realise there was two entrances <laughs> just because they look identical I'm like ah, what's the big deal when somebody went there's an entrance to your side I did not know that <laughs> but it is a good thing like, as you say it kind of it makes it a bit more realistic because it seems like you've got the heels kept away for the faces and they're more near each other because obviously the war they would fight so because I mean like, if you see guys coming the entrance way it's WWE you're like well he's standing behind the curtain and he's standing behind him waiting to get so you kind of know that they're standing there whereas well obviously EW they brought it back you've got the, the left side and the right side so it does make it a bit more interesting to say like obviously they're keeping the guys because obviously they're trying to keep as much kayfabe as they can but with social media that's kind of hard but keeping the guys kind of separated still keeps a wee bit of oh we need to keep these guys separate they'll kick each other yeah it, it worked well for that type of stuff and I think it kind of played into the bit less that this is just these guys are pals backstage it actually made you have that big match feel to it uh, you've seen that a few times but haven't you that somebody's walked out the, the backstage and the way the camera's angled they flick the cut note to walk out and you see the guy who's their opponent starting to bite the curtain and they have just been standing together for 10 minutes waiting to come out. I know, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, Scott, we've talked there about, we've talked the last 10 minutes or so about all the good niches that we have that they've developed that kind of made them popular. They did try a lot of stuff that they kept with, they were persistent with, and you think, this is a load of crap. One one, the King of the Mountain match. What the heck is the, what is <laughs> oh, this match? Oh, I need to disagree with you there. I need to disagree. Oh, no, man, it's bad. It just makes no sense. Like, they need to pin to get the chance to climb. And then they go in the cage, and then they're just like, what? One good <laughs> moment, uh, one good use of that penalty box, and any kind of match was Suicide's entrance for the uh, X Division one at Slammiversary 2009, where the lights go out, and everybody's waiting for Suicide, and Suicide appears on the penalty box and then just dives on everybody. Other than that, yeah, I agree, it's confusing. I think it's a case of like, the casino battle royal in, in AEW is okay, but sometimes the rule, there's too many rules. To, uh, to really get behind it and when a match has so many rules like you pin them to be eligible to kind the bill then you need to go in this box like you gotta think how easily can you explain these rules if you can't do it in 30 seconds it's, it's too complicated it's not worth doing and the fact that they persisted as their key match out there with Ultimate X really and yet in terms of quality these two are vastly different Right, what's your counterpoint on it then why is it good? There's something different I mean it's like because 
you always seen a ladder match, somebody scrambling and slowly climbing up the ladder and anybody can just out and anywhere jump for it. Whereas you couldn't climb the ladder and put the belt up unless you have a pinfall. So you've earned the right to climb the ladder. Whereas, how many times you say that? There you go, perfect example. James Elworth, he climbed the ladder, got the briefcase, out in area, and Molina was the fucking money in the bank winner. That could never happen to the King of the Mountain match. Well, they could have just jumped out. They could have just tossed it down and he's held the pod. I don't know. I don't know. They could have done something. Can we, can we agree on one thing? Can we all agree on one thing, though? Uh, the reverse battle royal is a lot of shite. Oh, that's. Aye. No, no, I love how stupid that is. And I remember Pro, Pro, and Progress done one for like one of their shows, and honestly, it is just absolutely. I don't understand what's going on, but I love it anyway. It's like you start inside, and then you need to go inside. And once so many people are inside, they then need to have another battle royal to go back outside. What I don't get is like everybody fights each other and then try to get in. Just run, and just the fastest they go. Just like don't try and fight everybody. Just run, because like you just slide underneath and get in. Because there used to be guys just hanging around outside ring when there's like two or three more people to go in. Like, why are you standing around? Slide in. Get your ass in there. They love like you're queuing when you're trying to go to Tesco and there's queues. Just fucking run in. Joy's I've got a mask. Just fucking run in. Joy's of it. I mean, as well, TNA had the red cell before WWE did with the Terradome match. Mm. Oh, God. Time for cage, basically. I had to get out, you had to escape. Exit. I always remember the one was it they did that on the impact we'll talk about later on where they went head to head with Raw, I'm sure. Jeff Hardy showed up. And Jeff Hardy, I just remember the picture of Jeff Hardy sitting on top of this cage. I, I do not know who won that match. Nobody does. Uh, <laughs> did anyone win it? If if somebody did win it, they don't know yet. If had same Jeff Hardy didn't know who won it either. <laughs> Jeff Hardy yeah. doesn't even know he was in TNA. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 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 there was some. They had some. They had for all the ultimate X's. They had some bad ones. Uh, the electric steel cage stands in mind of a really bad one between hmm. Team 3D and LAX. Uh, one as well. The last rights match between Sting and Abyss. Aye. Uh, you have to be in the casket, and then the casket must be uh, lifted. Yeah. But the cage, like. They kept choosing their moments, they chose certain spots where this thing would be electrified. So there were other times where guys were going for Irish Wits but hitting the cage as they went and nothing was happening so they immediately exposed it. And then as soon as they heard the, the piped in sound effects, the crowd turn on it. And then what makes it worse is they botched the finish of that match where homicides might get lodged in the cage, get electrocuted and fall back into the 3D but Devon doesn't properly catch him. So then you just casually just pick him up, Irish whip him and hit the 3D again. So like... Oh. Team, uh, team 3D were in TNA for so long, but when they were a team, I can barely count on one hand how many good moments they had, you know? It's like, they're, they're one of the greatest tag teams of all time, but they were they were just there for the cash. Yeah. They did absolutely bugger all until Bob and, uh, Bubba became a singles guy when he was blurry, and he did a lot of decent stuff then, but... Can I mention uh, uh, another shitty gimmick thing that they did? What's that? Uh, the, do you remember the lockbox challenge? Oh, I don't remember that one. It was like, these knockouts, was in 2010, the knockouts had like four series of matches, they all earned a key to a box, and inside was, uh, inside one box was the knockouts championship itself, 
almost a championship opportunity in any match you wanted. One of them was Tara's Spider was inside. And basically the fourth wall bug was like whoever opened that had to go to the ring and do a striptease. So it was Velvet Sky, Angelina Love, Tara, who's the champion, and Daphne. And Tara opened hers and inside was her spider and she was celebrating, but then realized, wait, this means I've lost the knockouts championship. And Angelina Love's box had the title in it. So Angelina Love won the title via lockbox. This looks like this looks like a worse version of Feast of Fire. I was going to say, Feast of Fire was pretty bad. That was just fucking daft. There was one... Deal or no deal on a fucking pole. Was there one where somebody got a briefcase through it to somebody? It was a tag team. And it was like a single shot instead of... I can't remember who that was, but... Yeah, Feast of, Feast of Fire. Was a, there was the one... Uh, what's the really hardcore match that they did that Abyss was always in? Third ball. Monster's ball. That was brutal. Forty, wasn't it? It was brutal. It's always brutal. Very early, Abyss was absolutely great. I thought he was up. He did a great job. But I think with TNA, the big moment I think for them, they had this whole time over the first three years where they were a bit more of an indie company. I think uh, Scott, one of the big moments for them was when they got onto Spike TV and Impact became on Weekly TV because Spike TV was a really big deal at that point in time. I don't know what the hell they're doing now. I never hear anything about them, but. Monday Night Raw was on Spike TV pretty much not long before that, so to be on that one on a, on a night, it was a massive deal for this company three years into their, their time and, you know, existence. Yeah, I think Raw then moved back to USA, so they were like an opening on Spike for wrestling and TNA were basically right place wrestling. And it feels like they felt like a Spike deal on Spike more so than any other network, I think, up until now, now that they're on Access TV, every other channel in between and access, I don't think really took Impact or TNA very seriously because, like, then they went to a two hour show and they were given a lot of time, and it was it did feel like a, a big deal. And I think having a major television to like someone speak is kind of the push that they needed because that's when they then started getting bigger and bigger stars. And I think again, like, now they waited a few years, and yeah, it was questionable doing that weekly pay per view thing, but they bided their time and now finally had a proper. A TV deal, which they knew that other companies like WCW and ECW, their major downfall was not having a major TV deal for people who see them. Yeah, fuck! Uh, I just gave the Dudleys a lot of spick like five minutes ago, you know. But it's, I always, I fondly remember that night on when they debuted on uh, Spike and the Dudleys showed up and the place went absolutely crazy for them. That's the thing. I mean, obviously, you know, people in the crowds are going to be wrestling fans. I mean, you see somebody for WWE own an alternate. I mean, how was with AEW? People you liked in WWE who were getting a shit deal, and you see them on AEW, you pop because you're like, this guy may actually get a chance. I mean, look at when John Moxley appeared on AEW. The place went ape shit, and you thought, well, this is him going to get something different. So I think that's what the kind of the Dudleys, obviously, you say the biggest tag team in the world, and them going to a company like, as you say, a three-year-old company. Coming for WWE, you're like, ah, well, this is kind of a big deal. Yeah, definitely. And Grant, this was kind of the start. The Dudleys were kind of the start of all these big names that were coming in. You know, the bit, the one name that really stood out to me at that point in time, he was not a massive name in WWE. He was, he was a well-established name, Christian Cage, or as we know him as Christian. Christian. <laughs> uh, he showed up. I mean, he was at, at the point in WWE when he was there. He was 
decent, but he was just floating in the mid-card, but he went to TNA and he instantly became the star that he, WWE should have treated him as when he left there. It's amazing how much a difference just changing like the promotion that you're in and the creative team can like completely change a wrestler. Someone who could be viewed as a low mid-carder, so either they're, if they're given the right push, the right incentive, the right opponents, it can completely reverse their fortunes entirely. And yeah, I mean, you had Christian appearing amongst that, you had the likes of Rhino, Kevin Nash, Sting, Scott Steiner, yeah, Kurt Angle, <laughs> Kurt T. You know, the, like, Gangrel as well, I mean, all you needed was Edge and you would have had the brood back earlier. <laughs> oh God, I, I remember the... Christian had a lot of great stuff when he was in TNA. Yeah, you know, his team with Styles and Promco was great, you know, he had a good vein. But for all that, there was a bis coming into his house and drowning him in his pool. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Big guy just in the... I didn't... Fair play to Christian to have a nice wee pool area in his house, but, you know, it's like... that. Ca the camera guy's just on there going, just stop the man from drowning him in his house. What, just murdered? I know, exactly. Like, what are you doing? You know, you know, it was something but, else. Yeah, see what Grant say, that's, that's 100% true. Christian was really good, but he just never seemed to get by that mid-card point, point. He goes to TNA world champion look at AJ AJ went to WWE a job to the hurricane but yeah he went he was in TNA and he was the first triple crown champion uh, it's, it's a, great, a, a great name as well Strack. there was Raven as well I remember the, uh, Raven was the guy who finally dethroned Jeff Jarrett after so many years back just before the likes of Christian and that came in just before that he became the champion then and then for some reason they stuck him in this stupid feud with Larry Zabisco where they just had all these guys come in try to beat him like just incredible <laughs> like he's just won the he's just been your champion and you have a job Feel like nearly dropped it just incredible. Listen, we've got Adam Cole jobbing to Pat McAfee, so let's not go down that route. Pat McAfee's I, doing no bad. I believe Pat McAfee, McAfee's actually decent, he, he can actually wrestle. He's doing no bad. Come on. See if I had that later than a DiCaprio filter, I'd put that on the room. Scott, he, he mentioned Sting as well. I remember the moment where Sting. Sting did a lot of stuff in the early TNA, but you don't really remember it as much. But I remember the night, I can't remember what pay-per-view it was, but Jeff Jarrett's in the ring at the end of it and the lights go off and it's just the baseball bat left on the chair for Sting. And it's like, I have not seen Sting wrestle for four years. This is absolutely amazing. I always thought, it was that point when he didn't show up WWE at the invasion. I was like, whatever happened to Sting? And then that bat, that bat was there. I was like, oh, that's where he's been all this time. I wasn't, internet wasn't as big then. I didn't really realize he'd been off doing other stuff. You know? I think uh, if Sting never went to TNA, and just like didn't wrestle again after the invasion. I think our memories of him would be a lot different. And talk about again a missed opportunity. But I think it was a big get for him, given that this is not just a guy who was a former WCW champ. This is not, or bringing someone who's from the WWE. This is a guy who is a former multiple-time champion and also refused to go to WWE. But he's coming here to us. And from people who knew Ben heard of TNA, but knew that Sting would never go to WWE, think well, in TNA must be a big deal if Sting wants to go there. And Sting over as time went on worked with more and more like the younger guys as well as his former uh, other like former world champions. He was part of the main event mafia, which is kinda good, kinda bad in some respects. But you know, again Sting was a big get up until that point. It seemed like oh five, oh six, he just kept topping themselves like Christian and Sting and then eventually Angle after that just kept getting bigger and bigger signs. And I think it's a, a sad thing is with these signs is they just didn't know when to stop. I know I mean We'll talk about Angle before we get to the, the bad side of things. Recent last couple of weeks we've saw it's been like the anniversary of the moment where Kurt Angle shows up and he confronts Samoa Joe. I mean, 
that is a, that's still electric even to these days. The, the way they used Angle, I mean, you can talk about how controversial it was them bringing Angle in at that point because he had these problems with his addiction to WWE did try to help him with and he didn't want the help. But even so, if you take that aside, him and Joe still up there as one of the best queens in wrestling history. That iconic image, you've got Angle standing there, smiling ear to ear, and Joe is just standing behind him with the blood on the face, looking like he's going to kill him. Because that was some of Samoa Joe's best work at the time, and him and Angle, fucking dynamite. Absolutely incredible to watch. Like, that was a killer Samoa Joe, and Angle, despite his personal problems, some of his best in-ring stuff was around about that time. I thought that I remember the Joe stuff, it was always, Joe's going to kill you. But it's just, the way he worked, the way him and Angle, it's just kicking lumps out of each other, you know. It's it's amazing when you look back at it with Kurt Angle that he had so much of his career was actually in TNA, but everybody remembers him as that guy, the Olympic hero in WWE. He did so much great work in WWE. Strack, as Scott mentioned, they had there was the, the kind of main event mafia that brought all these guys together, but there was a lot of the bad stuff in there as well. I mean, not many people look very fondly on Booker T's time in TNA. See the time he came out with the accent on what, what, what? He was trying to talk to Christian with us. What was it meant to be? Was it meant to be Jamaican? Was it meant to be Polish? Was it meant to be. What the fuck? I don't even think he knew. I accidentally came out with the accent and went, oh, well, better just run with this. Yeah. <laughs> ah, you're looking there going, have you just had a fucking stroke? Well, somebody better get some help, by the way. I think he's just, I think he's just developed fucking Alzheimer's. He, he, has, a te- he has a terrible rain down there. Absolutely. Oh, I. The best moment is that clip that keeps going around uh, where he and Kevin Ash help a beat down, but he's still got a microphone in his hand when he's doing it. So he's commentating as he's as he's <laughs> beating people up. Look at his line up. He goes, oh, go away, guy, with a kick. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Nash is rotten down there as well. Kevin Nash's best moment was making Jay Lethal black machismo. That's his best thing he does down there. Everybody else is. Dr. Nash so gets like he's. This is Jay Lethal. Have you actually ever mentioned. Have you ever actually given a lethal injection? He puts this big, like, pipe in his mouth and, like, he's doing these, like, the Rorschach tests and he gives a. Uh, five of the different ones to low-key and he keeps giving the same answer warrior every time and he goes are you going to tell me this in any way it looks like Jim Hellwig kind of like Kevin Nash did, 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 did he queer it tear like a quad there as well probably when he, when he surprised me they had a really there was a really bad really controversial uh, pay-per-view with him and Nash and Hall with the team in with Joe and uh, Hall goes AWOL and uh, Joe rips the piss pretty much rips him Kevin Nash is apparently not was not very happy that Samoa Joe rips Kevin uh, Scott Hall. Even that was Scott stunning. Completely no shows him there. The other big name that they brought in round about round this time, I think he splits a lot of opinions. Was Mick Foley spelled down in TNA? Uh, what's uh, Scott? You're shaking your head for the listeners at home. I mean Foley? Um, well, they put the title on him, which is probably a flaw in itself. Well, I think if people listen back to our worst world champions show, they'll know I mentioned Mick Foley's run in. Uh, in TNA as world champion as my worst example of worst world championship reigns because like this is just three years ahead of a WWE doctor telling them we cannot legally ensure you to wrestle which put can't we cancelled a planned match with Dean Ambrose this is like 10 years after he's, he's won a world title on WWE that's a, that was a good title win this 
made no sense. Given the fact that Joe in 2008 finally got the title and lost to Sting, so Sting had the opportunity to put another younger, homegrown guy over, and they have him lose in a convoluted cage match finish to Mick Foley. It's just baffling. Like 2009, right into 2010, that's when you suddenly start to feel like this is probably going off the rails here. This was main event mafia thing as well, wasn't it? What's the exact? It wasn't exactly like small scale thing. It was quite a big thing for him. But uh, Strax, for every one of these main guys they brought around about this period of time between 2005 and 2010, they brought they, they did they had a lot of guys who were doing a lot of great stuff. We talked about the X Division guys as well, but for all those guys, we still had the likes of Abyss, guys like Monty Brown, who was amazing in TNA, and then he went to WWE Aye. and they absolutely buggered him something <laughs> awful. I mean, Hernandez looked great in TNA as well. He had so many good... That was the third thing about the, like, the TNA. You had, like, they'd give people a shot. Because, I mean, like, Austin Aries became Austin Star. <laughs> and it was fucking terrible. Then he came back to Austin Aries. Then he kind of thought, well, maybe we'll give him a wee, a wee push again. Because he is, he is good. See, so Monty Brown was brilliant. Um, trying to many other... Mason Red was there at the time, wasn't he? He was about somewhere there, and I. Uh, he was actually, really, I actually really liked him. Crimson. He was, was like Crimson. Crimson was a wee bit later, but he had a good shout. I, I thought he was 2010. I think he was about 2010. It was round about the point of uh, the Immortal Stable, which we'll talk about a wee bit later on. Aye. Uh, he was about. I just made the point. You say Austin Aries, he's a ball bag. I don't know that. I don't know if that. Oh, bag. Good wrestler. Good wrestler, but a ball bag. We could talk about a lot of wrestlers in that sort of fashion. <laughs> I think if I ever meet Austin Aries, he'd be like, hi, I'm Austin Aries, ball bag. <laughs> I mean, what a banana. <laughs> <laughs> Let's cut through red tape right now, ball bag. I mean, Monty Brown's still got the best finisher. One of the, the best pounds. finishers ever. The, his pounce was amazing. I mean, Keith Lee does a good pounce, but it's no Monty Brown pounce. Oh my God. Monty Brown's is incredible. <laughs> The video he posted recently talking about Lance Archer had his match against John Moxley, and he showed like this guy can still talk. He's not been a part of wrestling in years, and like you think like how did this guy not accomplish more in either TNA or WWE? But you can only do so much when you get stuck with Kevin Ford. Match striker, match striker, oh my god, match striker. He's a oh, he's a TNA <laughs> Isn't he in like the Bachelorette or something these days? Oh, he's on that. Do you that show? But do you want to impregnate somebody? That's it. Uh, fucking mental. Sorry, oh, oh, I've the bus here. There's a show. What? <laughs> they compete to impregnate somebody. It's like the Bachelorette, but instead of like marrying them at the end of it, you just preg- make the pregnant. I think you need to rephrase the whole compete to impregnate somebody because that sounds like something completely. That, that just sounds like you had to date Megabar. <laughs> just compete to impregnate somebody. <laughs> Uh, you sound like they're all in a fucking time limit. Last one is It's a Ross McCloud special, a 60 second time limit with 10 <laughs> seconds to cry afterwards. Uh, <laughs> I've not watched the show, so it could be about that. We don't know. But, you know. That, uh, watch, Google the show, it's called Get Fucked. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good period in TNA history, this one. I think this is probably. Bad choice of words. <laughs> the, the, the five years between 05 and 010 is a very good period for the. Oh, I said it. It's a good. Time. It's a good time. It's a good time. 
much like TNA at this time. Oh god, but just a bad, just a bad week, mate. Just a bad week. There was a an interesting point round about <laughs> 2009, where Strack, I'll go back to you on this one for your smart arsenal. Uh, where TNA announced that they had signed Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff, and they would show up at the beginning of 2010 to ignite a new Monday Night War when they announced that they were going on Monday nights to compete against Raw. This was never going to end well for any side of this kind of point with the Hogan stuff and the moving to Monday night, was it? Why is it a point about Hogan, you always come to me first? <laughs> is it because you know I fucking hate him? Oh yeah, of course. We need to, go, we need yeah, to right. start like that. <laughs> see, see when Hogan came to TNA, see the bit in Snatch where Brad Pitt punches a guy full force and knocks him out? and Jason Statham just freezes and goes, now we are fucked. That was my now we are fucked moment. <laughs> as soon as I seen Hulk Hogan and Bischoff coming, I'm like, ah, oh well, WCW going to repeat itself. No, it was, it was, I mean, Grant, I mean, it was, we were ten, nine years off of the Monday Night Wars. I mean, TNA, they had a nice swing going on this Thursday night, whatever night they were at that point in time, you know, nice niche point, but there was no need to go against Raw, even though, let's be really honest, Raw wasn't great in 2010, let's not even hide it. I mean, yeah. they, were, they were worried a wee bit because they brought Bret Hart back because they didn't know if actually TNA were going to beat them. So, I mean, like, and you look at the, like, the guys that they hired at the time as well, it's quite like surprising, like Ric Flair, Rob Van Dam, Mr. Anderson, Jeff Hardy, and going back to the four-sided ring, and you're just like, but what, what is the point here? What is this? I did not sign up for this. Got that. Scott, Grant mentions all the good names there. They also signed guys like Orlando Jordan, Sean Morley, who's better known as Val Venus, who actually gets a clean win on pay-per-view a couple of months later against Christopher Daniels. They also signed the Nasty Boys. Well, let's be honest, the Nasty Boys sell-by date was like one week after their debut in the 1990s. I, I, I hate the Nasty Boys. <laughs> With a passion. I think the Nasty Boys hate the Nasty Boys, let's be brutally honest with them at that point. Uh, I, read, I read recently about a story about how in like night, the late 90s, Ken Shamrock tried to batter them in an airport. <laughs> and, he, probably, he probably would have done it. He, he probably would have, but like, I think I've, I've listened to quite a bit about Eric Bischoff's uh, podcast and given it's almost 10 years now from when he debuted in TNA, he's been going back and watching some of these old TNA stuff. And he admits that he that TNA didn't want him, they wanted Hogan. Hogan wanted Bischoff to come with him. He, TNA was kind of like his Jimmy Hart, given that Vince Russo thing was still aligned with TNA, and Hogan didn't trust Vince Russo, so he wanted someone he could trust. And I think with Bischoff coming in, he said it wasn't about going ahead to WWE. Like, it may not have been for him, but clearly that's what Dixie was wanting when he came in and they brought him in, and he was. He's been very adamant about getting rid of the six age ring because he said, like, when I talked to the people involved in the company, he said, like, no one could give me a good reason to keep the six age ring other than, oh, it looks different. And he didn't see that as a good enough reason. Ah, God, I know. It's something bad. But uh, I think, Strack, there's two points in this kind of period these couple of years that people say helped lead to the downfall of DNA. One of them is the Immortal Stable, which was famously this whole thing about 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 <laughs> at that point in time where 
the stable. It was meant to be this amazing, this stable that was going to save PNA, but it ended up being Abyss, Jeff Jarrett, Hogan, Bischoff, Gunner, better known as the that well, that stupid idiot Jack Jackson Riker. I have uh, the other guy who didn't make it, and uh, I mentioned Jeff Je- and Jeff Hardy, who let's be brutally honest, around the time fucked it for himself. He was at the time he was higher than the drafts, Manny. Let's be fair. So the the moral stable was just Hogan's got a tattoo on his back. This is a moral. So was it just to cater to his ego? Oh yeah, the motor Hulk Hogan. Or was it just so he could fucking remember? (laughs) Everything Hogan did was to appeal his ego. Like before that, he was given a Abyss's Hall of Fame ring, which apparently had magical powers or something like that. God, the the whole thing was bad because it was this thing. Like there was the stinging Kevin Nash for the part where the you know they said they were the bad guys, but yet turned out they were the good guys because they were right. You know. The more Joe believed Jeff Jarrett, let's be really honest, you should never believe Jeff Jarrett for anything. Talk about all the guys that worked for Global Force Wrestling, they'll tell you that. Try to sell you gold. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> don't, don't trust Jeff Jarrett. Everything's okay with your wife, we're just pals. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's J E double F, J A double R, double. I think that. Double down in your messies. Oh god, I had the future cut the angle of it through the fucking window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you seen Kurt Angle's new misses? I think Kurt Angle locked out in this situation here. What wait? I don't know, I don't know if he'd want to be with Karen Jarrett. Seems a bit like a, a really, really angry bugger. She's the original Karen. Oh, she is. Like- the way she, she ran, apparently yelled at Braun Strowman in front of everybody in a bar one time. There's a story about that a couple of years ago that he apparently was rude to her and didn't know who she was. Why should he? I know. I'm, I'm so sorry. I did not recognise you are someone who has sex with a famous wrestler. You remember as part of that this? could be anyone. <laughs> uh, if you're Dolph Ziggler, it could be. Uh, Jeff, Kurt, and Karen story. I'm pretty sure they brought China in for a one-off, didn't they? They did. Uh, China and Angle took on Jarrett and Karen at a pay-per-view. Oh, uh, that was so much bad stuff. Jeff Jarrett does not a lot of bad stuff at the you know. There was the burial of the, the was it the burial of the Team 3D, the funeral for Team 3D, back in like 2005. Uh, Grant, the other stable who gets a lot of criticism for this downfall in DNA, the Aces and Eights. Aye, that's uh, that was not exactly, I'd say, the most memorable stable of all time. Um, it's, it's like Retribution before Retribution. Oh God! God, I just say that, and I'm thinking about it. It's like, yes, there's no other way you can think of it. What it is? It's just like, I mean, I'm I'm looking through the guys who were in that stable. You had the the big first reveal with Devon. You're like, right, cool, Devon, and then they started bringing in guys like Garrett Bischoff. Nobody cared. I was the ref, and nobody cared. (laughs) Nobody cared about him. I don't even think his dad cared about him. That's when yeah. they took their mask off and they went, Wow! Who's that? <laughs> was it? There was Wes, there was Wes Briscoe as well. It was just like hanging about. You know, he was absolutely The big heel promo where he was talking about why he joined Ace and Eights, called Hulk Hogan Hawk Hogan or something like that, didn't he? 
It's a shame because you look at some of the members that actually had some really good wrestlers within them as well. Like you had one half of the good brothers. Look, Gallows. Dunk. Dunk. The worst one was the worst one about it was I remember when D.O. Brown gets revealed and he comes in the cage and Kurt Angle looks like he's seen a ghost. <laughs> he's just looking at the re- he's looking at the real deal now. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, maybe with D.O. done he draws, he's like, oh, don't break my neck. But uh, Scott, the worst. <laughs> Scott, the worst reveal of an Aces and Eights member ever. Was Tito Ortiz. That was so shitty. <laughs> <laughs> like, the only thing they did is because they brought in that guy Rampage, who was also an A-team, maybe part of the new main event Mafia. They thought, I think they were building up to a fight they never actually had. Uh, they were going to fight on Bellator, Rampage, Jackson and Tito Ortiz. Because like, that thing, they were, they were always hyping up Bellator because they were also on fight. So he, he just comes out and just folds his arms. And we're all meant to think, a lot of us, especially who aren't American, are all thinking, who are you? <laughs> Mr. Anderson tries to sell it and it's just like <laughs> just sitting there like Conor McGregor who the fuck is that guy <laughs> I don't even think the commentary team really give a fuck about it it's just like what what the fuck you know who are you guys you know uh, one one prop I'll give about this period track is that I, there was a I really liked Rick Flair's fortune stable around about this time I thought that could have been something bigger than it ended up being because there's a lot of talented guys in there. I mean, you had James Storm, Bobby Roode, AJ, you know, um, Desmond Wolf, Frankie Kazarian. Desmond Wood was in it. Desmond Wolf was in it at one point, better known as Nigel McGuinness. You know, Doug Williams was in it. Well, I think the problem with the fortune was see when they had it as just the four guys: AJ, Storm, Roode, and Kazarian. That was fine. Fortune four, believe it is that. See when they started adding Desmond Wolf, they started adding fucking. And you're like, why you're adding a stable to guys to a stable who have no connection to this? Because you like, you know, James Storm, Bobby Red, Frankie, they're all pals. They are real, real life pals. You know this, so you're like, why add these random guys into a team? And it just didn't. The only thing I didn't like about Fortune as far as when AJ started getting coached by Flair, his style changed. It was mere ground technical when I was like nah fucking nah no that's not AJ I'm, I'm interested in I'm interested in what this uh, moonsault and a DDT this ground pish more flips aye um, and Scott for every great fortune at that point for there was there was, uh, there was EV EV2 EV2.0 you know DNA's attempt to revive ECW with Brian Kendrick <laughs> Oh, I think I'll say a bit fortunate is like, how do we improve the four horsemen? Well, let's have six of them. And have a weird variation. <laughs> Astrak said that it made sense at first because it was Kaz, Styles, and Beer Money. And then they stuck Doug Williams in, and then they had Matt, Matt Morgan. I mean, oh, no, one, no, one, no one has had so many chances in a company than Matt Morgan had in DNA. It was just like, up and I'm down, I'm up and I'm down, I'm up and I'm down. When he came, when the ECW guys came in, they made them seem like invaders, and then suddenly they were invited by Dixie, and then suddenly their faces, and then these young guys who are basically again homegrown guys who don't like like husbands coming in are apparently <laughs> heels for wanting to protect their spot, and then they have a lethal lockdown match at Bound for Glory, which the ECW guys won. Like, it really made no no sense, and then 
eventually go face and then the face version of uh, Fortune, which is again maybe four people, has five because they had Christopher Daniels. Yeah, no, but Daniels really wanted to turn on AJ for the film. Or, or him and Kaz end up turning on AJ. To be, that, the good thing from that one is that was the beginning of the formation of SCU. SCU! <laughs> Can't remember their name. They, they were the addiction at one point as well. Aye, ah, bad as well. Kaz bad in- influence. Bad influence, aye. Uh, uh, influence. And they became the addiction. Then they became SCU when they brought Scorpio Sky in. Briefly with Bobby Roode, Bobby Roode. Yeah, a thing called Ego, which stood for Extraordinary Gentleman's Organization. Oh, on Bobby Roode. Do you remember when he was when he was in Team Canada? And Team Canada split up and they had this thing for weeks of Bobby Roode bringing in a manager. And he's... <laughs> Bob, he was in a limo with Bobby Heenan. <laughs> And he's man- I can't remember who he ends up as his manager. It's somebody not very... Miss Brooks. Miss Brooks, that's who it was. Who's Meg the Kassarian, which you're like, oh, wow. Okay. I had all these all these great managers uh, from and queuing up at the door and he goes, no, I'm picking up. Are you really? Yeah. You're a fucking madman. <laughs> you could have picked James Mitchell. I mean, James Mitchell was great at that time. Who would you rather look at? James Mitchell or Miss Brooks? Yeah, you'd rather look at Miss Brooks, but well then, James Mitchell threw a fireball and stings eye. Little bit Kazarian, like remember the first time he came out? He was locked in twenty twelve. He came out with his short hair for the first time with no warning, and now when you look at him today in AEW, you think I can't looking at you with long hair now looks weird because you're just so used to this weird short hair look he's got now. I know. It's, it's he looked a bit like Antonio Banderas, I think. It's, he does look. He, I, I've been used to him with the bald head. What? It was like when Wayne Rooney got his uh, hair transplant. It's like I was used to you having a floating ball, now you just look <laughs> midlife crisis. Um, the good thing is we could say they had that period of time, things weren't great, you know. They had an angle where they had all that stuff with James Storm and the Great Sonata. Mickey James got chucked onto a, a railway line. There was a lot of bad stuff about that time. <laughs> oh, what was that there? James oh, what were they called? James Storm Stable. I can't remember what they were called. It was Storm, Abyss, DJP, and Sonata. And they tried to get Jeff Hardy, and he kept going, there's room for one more. Oh, they had the, the Indian guy, Cheetah. Cheetah, Because it all kind of led to that. They had the, um, the Bound for Glory, which was in collaboration with Wrestle 1 in Tokyo, and it was like James Storm and the great Sonata against um, Muta and Tajiri for the main event. You're like, what? I know it came out of absolutely nothing. It was just uh, it was just a way to get the Japanese side of it. But they've had um, they've recovered in recent years. I think it's fair to say, Grant. And I think the current state of uh, TNA Impact Wrestling is now called in the last year. They're looking relatively healthy. You know, they've had some great stuff going on. The tag team division looking great with the North. What shitty machine guns have came back. You know, they're in a really good place. Impact right now. Aye, if you look at like kind of like pretty much the Don Callis and Scott Demore kind of era coming in 2018, it's been it's been absolutely fantastic. I mean, like they just seem to be producing great pay per view. They they kind of they built a lot of guys up. The likes of Pentagon and Phoenix really made a name for themselves there. Brian Cage, who have all ended up in AEW in fairly big roles. Um, you know, it, they've made a lot of stars. Um, they've had a few a few misfires as well. Um, Given your main belt, given your main, given your main belt from Sammy Callahan to Tessa Blanchard, it turned out to be a massive racist. Whoops! But you know, <laughs> that that was a good move at the time. 
at the time that was a great move, and then like a week later it was like, oh no, before the build up, and the build up it was it was like this is going to be a great move, and then like the week before the pay per view it's like, like like Sammy Callahan, I know he divides opinions, but to me like I've absolutely loved his run in TNA over the last couple of years. He's been an absolute star, and um, completely even things like that accident with um, Eddie Edwards with the baseball bat to the eye. Oh. That was, was fucking it? brutal, but my god, they made that they made that work. They had a great food. They had a really good food. Good. Um, Strat, uh, Grant mentioned the likes of Pentagon and Phoenix. I'd never seen these guys wrestle no. until they were in TNA at that point. But they were, it was that trip, was it the triple threat match with day two in Aries? I can't remember. I can't was. really remember because I, I fell away from TNA for a good bit because people are going to hate me for this. I fell away from TNA when Matt Hardy started doing the broken gimmick. Oh, that was Delete. good. That's what I was gonna, that was the next thing I was going to I could not stand that gimmick. And then Drew was kicking about, and EC3 was kicking about, Bobby Lashley, and I'm like, oh, this is getting fucking boring. So I just bailed out, and I kind of I fell away for it a wee bit. Uh, the first time I've seen, ever seen Pentagon was he won their world championship, didn't he? That triple, that triple threat match. He posed for a 40. I thought he was an action figure. <laughs> I actually seen him, he's holding the belt, and I went, that's quite a realistic action figure. Then realised, oh shit, that's an actual guy. Oh, he, he, he was. That was a great match. That's one of the best matches I've seen. There was a. Uh, back to the point of see with Granny going to Tesla Blanchard, massive racist. Oops, Hogan was running the place, of massive racist. So, oops, it's a habit of DNA. <laughs> yeah, uh, Scott actually, uh, Strack mentioned the. We need to talk about it at that point in time. Yeah, um, I like it now. By the way, I do like it now. I hated it then, but actually, I'm on board right now. I think, uh, Scott, I think final deletion stuff played a big role in getting TNA a wee bit back on the map. Because I remember when that match came out and everybody was talking about it because of how ludicrous and outrageous it was. But I might actually watch it later on because it's actually, <laughs> I've not watched it in so long. I remember, I remember getting told, I never seen, I fell away from Impact at this point, and somebody said, You need to watch this. And it was like, what the heck is going on here? This is nuts. The first video, the whole like brother Nero and the fake baby thing, like that first couple of videos, I was like, what is this? What is this shit? And then you actually start getting, you realize it's, it's meant to be like this. And Matt Hardy even went as far as saying in an interview with Chris Jericho that Impact didn't really know what they were putting on TV when they put the final deletion on. Is that like they'd shot it, Jeremy Borash edited it, they sent the completed version to them, and Impact put it on their TV without really realizing what they were doing and eventually when they seen the reaction like alright they were that desperate like if I can go because in 2016 they were struggling and it was the broken mat stuff that was keeping them afloat I think at that time which then Anthem came and fucked up and caused Matt to fuck off I know it was like they try to, they try to Matt Hardy tries to do this broken stuff recently in AEW he tried it in WWE but it's never been the same as that one they had that goal they had in TNA no, I mean, it's something that's kind of like, it's not quite paid off the same way, it's not, no, Brother Nero, I knew you'd come, but, <laughs> but uh, he did make some of it work, and he's kind of feud with Jericho leading up to the stadium stampede, um, the fact that he done like the, like, broken Matt Hardy, and you had Matt Refact Hardy under the water, which was one of the funniest things I've ever seen, that whole underwater, just giving it the thumbs up. And it's popped up as different, but I, I pissed myself at that. I thought it was hilarious. Absolutely. Like like, uh, uh, proud, powerful, trying to drown this guy. He's pissed, he's happy underwater, and then pop him up as 
Hardy Boys, Matt Hardy, then version one, and you're like, ah, this should Speak- be funny in wrestling, but it's fucking hilarious. Speaking of Pride and Powerful, their run and impact is LAX. When you had LAX against the OGs, the series of matches that led to like the match where like you had the ring was stripped, the the, the bare boards were out and everything. It was so fucking brilliant and hard hitting. See, the thing about that is going a wee bit away from TNA at this point. This was great. So they just put these two boys on the map. And I think ever since they paid me AEW, they've dropped the ball with the two of them mega. I know they're with Jericho, I know they're with the other stuff going to get regular exposure, but they two should have had a couple, at least one or two reigns as a tag champs. Like, go, going off, like, kind of still talking about guys that were in TNA, um, I got the joy last year of going to Fight Club Pro's Dream Tag Team Invitational. I went to night three, and the opening match was LAX against the Lucha Brothers. And oh. it was fucking outstanding. It's probably possibly still the best tag match I have ever seen live in person. And if you can watch it, it, it was like their TNA stuff to an extent, but just amped up because they could just go nuts. They had complete free reign. My problem, my thing, downside that happened to Proud and Powerful while we're still talking about them is when they had the match with the, the Bucks of Full Gear last year, and they literally got, they fed them through the Rock and Roll Express. And um, Scott will know how much I hate the Rock and Roll Express in twenty in right this current thing. Right it is just I, I don't want I don't care about Ricky Morton hitting Canadian destroyers on these two guys. It should be your tag champs. But that's the thing. There was so much great about. It. I mean, Jack. I know you're quite a big fan of Brian Cage as well. His stuff in TNA was great. Oh, that's the thing. I didn't really see much of him in TNA. I seen bits and pieces. I mostly see him in Lucha Underground. That's where I kind of go. Um, I, yeah, I don't even know how I've done that as well. Because first, kind of, where I seen Pentagon, I seen Ray Phoenix, Ricochet, guys like that. I seen. I don't even know how I bumped onto Lucha Underground. I can't remember what I was looking up, but I seen Lucha Underground. I seen Brian Cage, and I thought, well, he'll never get to WWE because of wellness policy. But you think, oh, another big guy, <laughs> another big powerhouse, and then he starts doing fucking hurricane runners and moonsaults, and you're like. Ah. How the fuck is this guy this big and moving like this? And then he went to TNA and I kind of seen he moved there, there and I went, well, pfft, it's a no-brainer, put the title on him. Just, if you didn't, you'd bath your fucking nut. I think AEW, I would honestly say the same with AEW, get him away from Taz and this, what's that boy's name, Ricky Stark? Ricky Stark. Aye, get Brian Cage away from there too, get him on his end and have him fucking wreck people. And that's another big contender for them. But he, they definitely did kind of, I think, make himself more known in TNA. Yeah, I absolutely did. He's put his name out there, you know, and helped make him a big impact to him. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> we've tried over the last hour and a bit to try and go through as much of the TNA history as possible, but this is the point where I've got to go to my panel and I'm going to ask them to briefly outline their favourite TNA style of all time and also their favourite moment or match from TNA history. I'm gonna go to Scott first. Scott, what's your your what's your favourite? Oh, like when it comes to think about matches, I'm trying not to say the match from Unbreakable because it's it's too obvious a, a pick. <laughs> like any of the, any of the pop, matches from the back in the day they were always great. I think some of my favourites are the Think 
probably would be the likes of AJ or Joe. I think Jay Lethal as well. I think he's kind of he's been with Ring of Honor so long that I think in the last few years, like not a lot of people are talking about him as they used to. But his stuff in in TNA, like he's one of the few people who made a, a gimmick where you're you're doing an impression of another successful wrestler work because usually that's kind of like a death sentence to people. Like look what happened when Damian Sandow started doing it, with the exception of uh, doing the stuff with the Miz. But he managed to go out and say that he managed to while well doing that gimmick pin Kurt Angle for a title. So I uh, brought him up on the Xvideo. So I think not many people talk about uh, Jay Lethal as much because he it seemed like they were behind him in TNA, but clearly not as much behind him. They put the belt on him as Ring of Honor would later would later do. Very interesting picks there. Very uh, good one. Uh, Grant, what would you go for? I think I've got an inkling who you might say your favourite wrestlers are from TNA. So I'll go with favourite match first. Um, it's a true classic. Lockdown 2008 main event. Samoa Joe, Kurt Angle, six sides of steel cage for the World Championship. And if Joe had lost, he had to retire from wrestling. That is an absolute stellar match, beginning to end. As for my guys, as for because you you I, you know what I'm going to go, Stephen. I could I could have went for AJ Styles and that, but for me, best tag team of all time, the Motor City Machine Guns. By a mile, I'll take that. You think really was going to say that? He said that in past shows that he loves the gun. Who does he? Uh, who doesn't? It's a good point. You know, they are absolutely amazing. Granted, the very recent issue of Central last week was very annoyed of gun, the guns losing their tag titles to the North and Bound for Glory. I'm sorry, Stephen. Stephen Wilson just gave you a massive spoiler there. It's been. It's like a week ago. <laughs> Aye, there's a good reason for it. Alex Shelley took a hell of a hell of a awful looking pile driver and. I think it's not the movie. To be fair, how many injuries have the guns had? Chris Lagan, Chris Saban doesn't have his original legs. He's on his third ACL, I'm pretty sure. He's on his fourth leg. Who <laughs> <laughs> doesn't know the guns? I've got a pal, Paul, who likes the guns, but he prefers Shelley to uh, to Chris Saban. But to be fair, I think it's just because he fancies Shelley. Uh, <laughs> I could have talked to we could have talked earlier on about Shelley's paparazzi productions, but let's be honest, it's a wee bit creepy, right? <laughs> it's a really, it's, it was a wee, it was, it's a wee bit creepy. Let's be brutally honest. We just kind of stopped everybody. Just, no. Um Strack, what's your favourite DNA star, favourite match or moment? <laughs> favourite match, I can't remember the the show, the pay-per-view it was on, but it was the tag titles, AJ and Daniels versus Homicide and Hernandez. Show a table match. Um, that was just fucking class. Then you've AJ against Abyss. Ugh. I'll go with the tag, the tag team match, AJ Daniels versus LAX. Um, tag title match. I'm sure it was a table match. Um, and obviously, favourite wrestler for then, AJ Styles. He is the, he's the face of TNA. He's the poster boy. He was. There's no question about it. My favourite was probably Shark Boy or the Curry Man. <laughs> curry Man was incredible. He's hot. Like he's spicy. <laughs> that was Daniel's, wasn't it? Aye, Christopher Daniel's best gimmick ever. I'm pretty sure he actually done that in New Japan as well. Which I was like, wait, is this almost racist? They loved it. <laughs> they, they did. They, they absolutely loved it. So I was like, what? It was. See, the thing I find funny is, see, with like, Japan, people go. Oh, you can't do that, that'd be racist. And you go to Japan, they go, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> like Katy Perry wearing a, a kimono, and they went, that's culturally inappropriate. Japanese people didn't give a fuck about that. 
very true. He was also suicide, wasn't he? He was, a, he was suicide at one point. Aye, then it was Kazarian, then it was TJP. Then I'm sure it was somebody else when they brought the suicide back. Then he was... <laughs> just walked to this suit and went, who fits this? <laughs> no, oh, no. Dear. Caleb no, no, she... is, is under the suit now. Who? Yeah, it's called Caleb Conley is wrestling, is allegedly suicide now, but he's also wrestling, working as a, uh, Daniel Dash would say, photographer Caleb, with a K, is his film name. Oh, oh wait, did what, they, what they, they changed him to Manic, because Hogan didn't like suicide. I was Manic when he was in that James Storm table. Aye, but Hogan was like, oh, we don't like the word suicide, we want to change it to Manic. It's like, well, Hogan, you say the word we don't like, but you fucking came out with it, didn't you? Right. <laughs> I think that one at No Place Like Home show, they were going to do a thing where it was Manic and Suicide in a tag match. I don't know who they are going to face, but then again, we never got to see that show. Uh, uh, no, two guys to put in a tag team, Manic and Suicide, put us like a third member of depression. I do, have a, I do have a soft side for Sharp Boy. I know he was absolutely tough, but I've got a soft side for Sharp Boy. That stuff, I, love, I thought that stuff was oh, him being Austin was hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the chummer. <laughs> uh, it was the, it was when he was in the actual coma. Let's let's get sharp. How did he get sharp by at the coma? Like, why are you showing this on TV? You've got bloody cut angles some more, Joe. Whenever uh, there's like a Christmas episode of uh, Impact, where there's this weird like hardcore match, it's Abyss, Black Rain, Relic, and Shark Boy. Just like one of these things is not like the other. Black, <laughs> Black Rain and Relic is so bad as well. It's the worst Goldust gimmick apart from that gimmick he had in WCW. Uh, like I'm pretty sure it was played by Alan. We recently found out like Johnny the Bull from the FBI was Johnny the Bull. Aye, <laughs> aye, yeah. No, it's killer spelled backwards. Make name may mention it once or twice. That's so bad. Ooh, it was so the, edgy. <laughs> it was the it was the rat that Goldust had with him. Like, oh my god, he's uh, god killer. Goldust had what? Had a rat with him? Aye, kind of rat. Have you done a Scottish show? If people like that, Goldust, get your rat out. Nice. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, my favourite DNA wrestler is Samojo. The Nation of Violence stuff was amazing. It got me really into that product, and I just love it. Samojo does even when he's on commentary. I just think he's amazing. And other than the Unbreakable match, obviously that's an easy one to go with. <laughs> I have a really soft spot for the Bound for Glory 2006 main event. Between Jeff Jarrett and Sting, pretty much because the, the crowd goes absolutely nuts about it. I think the crowd are so invested in it. To see Jeff Jarrett get for the title of Sting, it's unreal. Then Sting drops the title a month later to Abyss. It's like. Be a DQ. Be a DQ. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> it's just like. Love Abyss. But. Oh, we didn't mention the iconic match with Sting and um, Jeff Hardy. <laughs> I thought we covered that when they said he was as high as a giraffe's back. No, we just mentioned <laughs> he was high. We didn't point out when he was high. I think it's that's enough of that. Don't be high, don't be high, don't be high, Jeff Hardy. It's a, it's a bad match. It's, it's awful. Moments. I mean, TNA gave us Steiner math. <laughs> oh! Very <laughs> <laughs> free. I can't even remember the numbers. Don't lie. The numbers don't lie. You want Scott Steiner to do your wages, you really do. But Scott Steiner and Petey Williams. Scary? Fuck you, Petey. <laughs> what, was his name? What, was his, what was his nickname, Petey Williams? Little Papa Pump. Little Papa Pump. 
Uh, and who, the man who actually gave us the Canadian Destroyer and made it a real move before it became a transition move. He hates he hates Ricky Morton started using them. He hates it for transition move and annoys the him. Sure, people say it's it's when people say but it's, it's somebody's move. He's like my move. <laughs> but it's called the Canadian Destroyer. But it's like it, see when you think of Canadian Destroyer, you think of Don West screaming his fucking head off when he hit it. It's like when. Like Nakamura hit the Kinshasa and Corey Graves screamed his fucking head off. Oh. Don, West, Don West is a terrible commentator, but he was good in TNA with uh, Mike Tenay. I, I was good for a pop. That's, that's what I was there for. Like, he's like Maro now if Maro had no wrestling background. He just turned up sat down one day in the lab. Be up to. <laughs> There's a lot of really good really bad stuff in TNA we've not really had the chance to cover there. We barely spoke about Eric Young, we barely spoke about Team Canada. We barely spoke about Jeff Bloody Jarrett. I think that's the way I think we talked enough about Jeff Jarrett here. Oh Canada. <laughs> well, we never talked about the Eric Bischoff versus his son. Bischoff that he can't use the surname Bischoff anymore and puts him in a porta potty and tips it over. Are you sure that was not the Royal Rumble twenty twenty? No, they stole that, but it was just the shit. I can't remember that match. Honestly, oh, I have no it. Oh, it was terrible. I have very little to remember it. I have very little memory of Garrett Bishop. Really even even YouTube's like, I don't really remember this. Don't there's, want. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff in TNA's history that you could talk. I mean, there was <laughs> Bobby Lashley was good in T was good in TNA. There were other guys that were good. Magnus, Nick Aldis was good in TNA. Rob Terry was there. You know, and then they made him the freak, they let him keep his gear and put a mask on him so nobody would know who he is. I know it was Although like, he's six foot five and got a lot of test and deca inside him. It's like when they put a mask on Otis on, on Raw last, this week, or last week. Like, that's oh, that awesome. Stephen, <laughs> I wish you'd stop saying that was Otis under that mask. There's no fucking proof here. <laughs> retribution. That, that, oh. was, that was a retribution tryout. El Gordo. Oh, I'm going to run that. Miz Retribution dropped all his freaking dry as yeah. As dry uh, as his eyes. Oh god, but there's been, there was so much in DNA's history, we've tried to get as much of it in these last two on the bit as we can, but if there's any moments from TNA that you liked, disliked, hated, what were absolutely guffed, Dixie Carter moments, uh, please get in touch with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at SuperLuxuryTweet, if you've enjoyed the show. Please subscribe to us. We're on all good podcasting platforms. Sleep the place we meet, and we're also on YouTube, where you can listen to Quiz Showdown, Conspiracy Theory, and the Book It Tournament, which is coming very soon. The we were all in it. It's a good watch. We're not going to spoil the results yet because they're coming in a few weeks. Some of us do well. Some of us do not very well. Were we all <laughs> against each other? And I think it was no you and Grant, and then me and Strack. <laughs> Yes, actually, that's a good point. Right. Two of us like win, two of us lose. You'll have to listen to find out. <laughs> <laughs> so much good stuff coming up. Um, this is obviously our Tuesday feature show. On Thursday, we've got the latest episode of the BSSR Central. The panel that week will go through everything on the news. Next week's show... I can't remember what it is. <laughs> Mr. That's my podcast. Can't remember his shows. It's organised as Dixie Carter. I only remember <laughs> the ones I'm on. <laughs> yes, next week is Dream Survivor Series teams for the panel. We'll be talking about their all-time favourite 
what they would like to see in Survivor Series teams ahead of that. And then the week after that, we'll be doing a profile on Alexa Bliss. Then we'll have our Survivor Series review show. But that's all the stuff coming up. You can also hear a great shows such as East Meets West with Grant and Scott. Where they talk about New Japan and everything down there. And we've also got Saturday Draft Live, where we go, the guys go through our own fantasy wrestling league, which is always an interesting listen, because it's the most competitive season to date. Bottom two, and the bottom three, sorry, in there. <laughs> Scott's, out the, <laughs> Scott's out the relegation zone as of time of recording. Uh, so that's all the stuff you can hear on our platform. From the team here tonight, this, we obviously talked the best of TNA. I'd like to thank the guys. First, Stephen Stratton. Strack, thank you. Cheers, mate. Uh, Scott McLeod, thank you. Give me a shell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to Grant McRobbie, thank you very much. Thank you, and uh, check out my Twitter. I'm going to start a petition to get Scott to watch live on stream that first TNA pay-per-view again, because I want to see the pain in his eyes. That'd be great for YouTube. watch the world burn, don't they? That'd be great on YouTube. <laughs> we could have Scott and David Campbell on the one YouTube. Scott watches it and David just watches Scott's face and laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> Okay. I think we need to do that. We need to watch like the worst wrestling pay per views, and just don't even watch the pay per view. Just watch us watching it, like gobble box, but funnier. Yeah, that ECW pay per view WWE run. No, 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 no. Remember, the worst pay per view of all time has a sequel coming up next month. Talking okay, shop mania. Ball for a ball. Oh, ball for a ball. Can't wait to see that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's all from us this week. I'm Stephen Wilson, and we'll see you next time. There now follows an enthusiastic advertisement for Quiz Showdown. Hello guys, welcome to Quiz Showdown. I'm Daniel Campbell and in this show you're going to see the members of the Eat Sleep Suplex retweet team go through a very strange quiz. We don't know what the heck's going on with it, but you're going to have to watch to find out. Go check out on the YouTube channel now. That was an enthusiastic advert for Quiz Showdown.